when Geraldine Tyler stopped paying her property taxes on her condo in Minneapolis. It was foreclosed by the county and sold for $40,000 to satisfy her debt. Now, the problem was that Ms. Tyler only owed the county $15,000, but they pocketed the remaining $25,000. So she sued the county, arguing that its actions violated her constitutional rights under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. The district court dismissed Tyler's case for failure to state a claim, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit affirmed that conviction. The court was presented two questions in this case. One, does taking and selling a home to satisfy a debt to the government and keeping the surplus value as a windfall violate the Fifth Amendment's takings clause? And two, is the forfeiture of property worth far more than needed to satisfy a debt, a fine within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment? The court held that Tyler plausibly alleged that Hennepin County's actions violated the takings clause and that her claim can go forward. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote a concurring opinion joined by Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, addressing the second question, which the majority chose not to address. As Justice Gorsuch saw it, Hennepin County's actions probably violated the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause as well. And now I give you the May 25th opinion of the court in Tyler v. Hennepin County, Minnesota. Enjoy. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Hennepin County, Minnesota sold Geraldine Tyler's home for $40,000 to satisfy a $15,000 tax bill. Instead of returning the remaining $25,000, the county kept it for itself. The question presented is whether this constituted a taking of property without just compensation in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Part 1 Hennepin County imposes an annual tax on real property. The taxpayer has one year to pay before the taxes become delinquent. If she does not timely pay, the tax accrues interest and penalties, and the county obtains a judgment against the property, transferring limited title to the state. The delinquent taxpayer then has three years to redeem the property and regain title by paying all the taxes and late fees. During this time, the taxpayer remains the beneficial owner of the property and can continue to live in her home. But if at the end of three years the bill has not been paid, absolute title vests in the state and the tax debt is extinguished. The state may keep the property for public use or sell it to a private party. If the property is sold, any proceeds in excess of the tax debt and the costs of the sale remain with the county to be split between it, the town, and the school district. The former owner has no opportunity to recover this surplus. 
Geraldine Tyler is 94 years old. In 1999, she bought a one-bedroom condominium in Minneapolis and lived alone there for more than a decade. But as Tyler aged, she and her family decided that she would be safer in a senior community, so they moved her to one in 2010. Nobody paid the property taxes on the condo in Tyler's absence, and by 2015, it had accumulated about $2,300 in unpaid taxes and $13,000 in interest and penalties. Acting under Minnesota's forfeiture procedures, Hennepin County seized the condo and sold it for $40,000, extinguishing the $15,000 debt. The county kept the remaining $25,000 for its own use. Tyler filed a putative class action against Hennepin County and its officials, asserting that the county had unconstitutionally retained the excess value of her home above her tax debt. As relevant, she brought claims under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment and the Excessive Fines Clause of the Eighth Amendment. The district court dismissed the suit for failure to state a claim. The Eighth Circuit affirmed, It held that where state law recognizes no property interest in surplus proceeds from a tax foreclosure sale conducted after adequate notice to the owner, there is no unconstitutional taking. The court also rejected Tyler's claim under the Excessive Fines Clause, adopting the district court's reasoning that the forfeiture was not a fine because it was intended to remedy the state's tax losses, not to punish delinquent property owners. We granted certiorari. Part 2 The county asserts that Tyler does not have standing to bring her takings claim. To bring suit, a plaintiff must plead an injury in fact attributable to the defendant's conduct and redressable by the court. This case comes to us on a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. At this initial stage, we take the facts in the complaint as true. Tyler claims that the county has illegally appropriated the $25,000 surplus beyond her $15,000 tax debt. This is a classic pocketbook injury sufficient to give her standing. The county objects that Tyler does not have standing because she did not affirmatively disclaim the existence of other debts or encumbrances on her home worth more than the $25,000 surplus. According to the county, public records suggest that the condo may be subject to a $49,000 mortgage and a $12,000 lien for unpaid homeowners association fees. The county argues that these potential encumbrances exceed the value of any interest Tyler has in the home above her $15,000 tax debt, and that she therefore ultimately suffered no financial harm from the sale of her home. Without such harm, she would have no standing. But the county never entered these records below, 
nor has it submitted them to this court. Even if there were encumbrances on the home worth more than the surplus, Tyler still plausibly alleges a financial harm. The county has kept $25,000 that belongs to her. In Minnesota, a tax sale extinguishes all other liens on a property. That sale does not extinguish the taxpayer's debts. Instead, the borrower remains personally liable. Had Tyler received the surplus from the tax sale, she could have, at the very least, used it to reduce any such liability. At this initial stage of the case, Tyler need not definitively prove her injury or disprove the county's defenses. She has plausibly pleaded on the face of her complaint that she suffered financial harm from the county's action, and that is enough for now. Part 3. Section A. The Takings Clause applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. States have long imposed taxes on property. Such taxes are not themselves a taking, but are a mandated contribution from individuals for the support of the government for which they receive compensation in the protection which government affords. In collecting these taxes, the state may impose interest and late fees. It may also seize and sell property, including land, to recover the amount owed. Here, there was money remaining after Tyler's home was seized and sold by the county to satisfy her past due taxes, along with the costs of collecting them. The question is whether that remaining value is property under the Takings Clause, protected from uncompensated appropriation by the state. The Takings Clause does not itself define property. For that, the court draws on existing rules or understandings about property rights. State law is one important source. But state law cannot be the only source. Otherwise, a state could sidestep the takings clause by disavowing traditional property interests in assets it wishes to appropriate. So we also look to traditional property law principles, plus historical practice and this court's precedents. Minnesota recognizes a homeowner's right to real property, like a house, and to financial interests in that property, like home equity. Historically, Minnesota also recognized that a homeowner whose property has been sold to satisfy delinquent property taxes had an interest in the excess value of her home above the debt owed. But in 1935, the state purported to extinguish that property interest by enacting a law providing that an owner forfeits her interest in her home when she falls behind on her property taxes. This means, the county reasons, that Tyler has no property interest protected by the takings clause. History and precedent say otherwise. 
the county had the power to sell Tyler's home to recover the unpaid property taxes. But it could not use the toehold of the tax debt to confiscate more property than was due. By doing so, it affected a classic taking in which the government directly appropriates private property for its own use. Tyler has stated a claim under the Takings Clause and is entitled to just compensation. Section B. The principle that a government may not take more from a taxpayer than she owes can trace its origins at least as far back as Runnymede in 1215, where King John swore in Magna Carta that when his sheriff or bailiff came to collect any debts owed him from a dead man, they could remove property until the debt which is evident shall be fully paid to us, and the residue shall be left to the executors to fulfill the will of the deceased. That doctrine became rooted in English law. Parliament gave the Crown the power to seize and sell a taxpayer's property to recover a tax debt, but dictated that any overplus from the sale be immediately restored to the owner. As Blackstone explained, the common law demanded the same. If a tax collector seized a taxpayer's property, he was bound by an implied contract in law to restore the property on payment of the debt, duty, and expenses before the time of sale or when sold to render back the overplus. This principle made its way across the Atlantic. In collecting taxes, the new government of the United States could seize and sell only so much of a tract of land as may be necessary to satisfy the taxes due thereon. Ten states adopted similar statutes shortly after the founding. For example, Maryland required that only so much land be sold as may be sufficient to discharge the taxes thereon due, and provided that, if the sale produced more than needed for the taxes, such overplus of money shall be paid to the owner. This court enforced one such state statute against a Georgia tax collector, reasoning that if a whole tract of land was sold when a small part of it would have been sufficient for the taxes, which at present appears to be the case, the collector unquestionably exceeded his authority. Like its sister states, Virginia originally provided that the Commonwealth could seize and sell so much of the delinquent tracts as shall be sufficient to discharge the said taxes. But about a decade later, Virginia enacted a new scheme which provided for the forfeiture of any delinquent land to the Commonwealth. Virginia passed this harsh forfeiture regime in response to the loose, cheap, and unguarded system of disposing of her public lands that the Commonwealth had adopted immediately following statehood. To encourage settlement, Virginia permitted any person to acquire title to so much unappropriated lands as he or she shall desire to purchase at the price of 40 pounds per 100 acres. 
Within two decades, nearly all of Virginia's land had been claimed, much of it by non-residents who did not live on or farm the land, but instead hoped to sell it for a profit. Many of these non-residents wholly neglected to pay the taxes on the land, so Virginia provided that title to any taxpayer's land was completely lost, forfeited, and vested in the Commonwealth if the taxpayer failed to pay taxes within a set period. This solution was short-lived, however. The Commonwealth repealed the forfeiture scheme in 1814 and once again sold so much only of each tract of land as will be sufficient to discharge the debt. Virginia's exceptional and temporary forfeiture scheme carries little weight against the overwhelming consensus of its sister states. The consensus that a government could not take more property than it was owed held true through the passage of the 14th Amendment. States, including Minnesota, continued to require that no more than the minimum amount of land be sold to satisfy the outstanding tax debt. The county identifies just three states that deemed delinquent property entirely forfeited for failure to pay taxes. Two of these laws did not last. Maine amended its law a decade later to permit the former owner to recover the surplus. And Mississippi's highest court promptly struck down its law for violating the due process and takings clauses of the Mississippi Constitution. Louisiana's statute remained on the books, but the county cites no case showing that the statute was actually enforced against a taxpayer to take his entire property. The minority rule then remains the minority rule today. 36 states and the federal government require that the excess value be returned to the taxpayer. Section C. Our precedents have also recognized the principle that a taxpayer is entitled to the surplus in excess of the debt owed. In United States v. Taylor, 1881, an Arkansas taxpayer whose property had been sold to satisfy a tax debt sought to recover the surplus from the sale. A nationwide tax had been imposed by Congress in 1861 to raise funds for the Civil War. Under that statute, if a taxpayer did not pay, his property would be sold, and the surplus of the proceeds of the sale would be paid to the owner. The next year, Congress added a 50% penalty in the rebelling states, but made no mention of the owner's right to surplus after a tax sale. Taylor's property had been sold for failure to pay taxes under the 1862 Act, but he sought to recover the surplus under the 1861 Act. Though the 1862 Act made no mention of the right of the owner of the lands to receive the surplus proceeds of their sale, we held that the taxpayer was entitled to the surplus because nothing in the 1862 Act took from the owner the right accorded him by the Act of 1861 of applying for and receiving from the Treasury the surplus proceeds of the sale of his lands. 
we extended a taxpayer's right to surplus even further in United States v. Lawton, 1884. The property owner had an unpaid tax bill under the 1862 Act for $170.50. The federal government seized the taxpayer's property and instead of selling it to a private buyer, kept the property for itself at a value of $1,100. The property owner sought to recover the excess value from the government, but the government refused. The 1861 Act explicitly provided that any surplus from tax sales to private parties had to be returned to the owner, but it did not mention paying the property owner the excess value where the government kept the property for its own use instead of selling it. We held that the taxpayer was still entitled to the surplus under the statute, just as if the government had sold the property. Though the 1861 statute did not explicitly provide the right to the surplus under such circumstances, to withhold the surplus from the owner would be to violate the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution and to deprive him of his property without due process of law or to take his property for public use without just compensation. The county argues that Taylor and Lawton were superseded by Nelson v. City of New York, 1956, but that case is readily distinguished. There, New York City foreclosed on properties for unpaid water bills. Under the governing ordinance, a property owner had almost two months after the city filed for foreclosure to pay off the tax debt, and an additional 20 days to ask for the surplus from any tax sale. No property owner requested his surplus within the required time. The owners later sued the city, claiming that it had denied them due process and equal protection of the laws. In their reply brief before this court, the owners also argued for the first time that they had been denied just compensation under the takings clause. We rejected this belated argument. Lawton had suggested that withholding the surplus from a property owner always violated the Fifth Amendment, but there was no specific procedure there for recovering the surplus. New York City's ordinance, in comparison, permitted the owner to recover the surplus, but required that the owner have filed a timely answer in the foreclosure proceeding, asserting his property had a value substantially exceeding the tax due. Had the owners challenging the ordinance done so, a separate sale could have taken place so that they might receive the surplus. The owners did not take advantage of this procedure, so they forfeited their right to the surplus. Because the New York City Ordinance did not absolutely preclude an owner from obtaining the surplus proceeds of a judicial sale, but instead simply defined the process through which the owner could claim the surplus, we found no takings clause violation. Unlike in Nelson, Minnesota's scheme provides no opportunity for the taxpayer to recover the excess value. Once absolute title has transferred to the state, any excess value always remains with the state. The county argues that the delinquent taxpayer could sell her house to pay her tax debt before the county itself seizes and sells the house. But requiring a taxpayer to sell her house 
to avoid a taking is not the same as providing her an opportunity to recover the excess value of her house once the state has sold it. Section D. Finally, Minnesota law itself recognizes that in other contexts, a property owner is entitled to the surplus in excess of her debt. Under state law, a private creditor may enforce a judgment against a debtor by selling her real property, but no more shall be sold than is sufficient to satisfy the debt, and the creditor may receive only so much of the proceeds as will satisfy the debt. Likewise, if a bank forecloses on a home because the homeowner fails to pay the mortgage, the homeowner is entitled to the surplus from the sale. In collecting all other taxes, Minnesota protects the taxpayer's right to surplus. If a taxpayer falls behind on her income tax and the state seizes and sells her property, any surplus proceeds shall be credited or refunded to the owner. So too if a taxpayer does not pay taxes on her personal property, like a car. Until 1935, Minnesota followed the same rule for the sale of real property. The state could sell only the least quantity of land sufficient to satisfy the debt, and any surplus realized from the sale must revert to the owner. The state now makes an exception only for itself and only for taxes on real property. But property rights cannot be so easily manipulated. Minnesota may not extinguish a property interest that it recognizes everywhere else to avoid paying just compensation when it is the one doing the taking. Part 4 The county argues that Tyler has no interest in the surplus because she constructively abandoned her home by failing to pay her taxes. States and localities have long imposed reasonable conditions on property ownership. In Minnesota, one of those conditions is paying property taxes. By neglecting this reasonable condition, the county argues, the owner can be considered to have abandoned her property and is therefore not entitled to any compensation for its taking. The county portrays this as just another example in the long tradition of states taking title to abandoned property. We upheld one such statutory scheme in Texaco. There, Indiana law dictated that a mineral interest automatically reverted to the owner of the land if not used for 20 years. Use included excavating minerals, renting out the right to excavate, paying taxes, or simply filing a statement of claim with the local recorder of deeds. Owners who lost their mineral interests challenged the statute as unconstitutional. We held that the statute did not violate the takings clause because the state has the power to condition the permanent retention of a property right on the performance of reasonable conditions that indicate a present intention to retain the interest. Indiana reasonably treated a mineral interest that had not been used for 20 years and for which no statement of claim had been filed as abandoned. There was thus no taking, 
for after abandonment, the former owner retained no interest for which he may claim compensation. The county suggests that here, too, Tyler constructively abandoned her property by failing to comply with a reasonable condition imposed by the state. But the county cites no case suggesting that failing to pay property taxes is itself sufficient for abandonment. Abandonment requires the surrender or relinquishment or disclaimer of all rights in the property. It is the owner's failure to make any use of the property and for a lengthy period of time that causes the lapse of the property right. In Texaco, the owners lost their property because they made no use of their interest for 20 years and then failed to take the simple step of filing paperwork indicating that they still claimed ownership over the interest. In comparison, Minnesota's forfeiture scheme is not about abandonment at all. It gives no weight to the taxpayer's use of the property. Indeed, the delinquent taxpayer can continue to live in her house for years after falling behind in taxes, up until the government sells it. Minnesota cares only about the taxpayer's failure to contribute her share to the public fisc. The county cannot frame that failure as abandonment to avoid the demands of the Takings Clause. The Takings Clause was designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. A taxpayer who loses her $40,000 house to the state to fulfill a $15,000 tax debt has made a far greater contribution to the public fisc than she owed. The taxpayer must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more. Because we find that Tyler has plausibly alleged a taking under the Fifth Amendment, and she agrees that relief under the takings clause would fully remedy her harm. We need not decide whether she has also alleged an excessive fine under the Eighth Amendment. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit is reversed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.